Who can tell me very briefly who Mr. Gowan is? Mr. Gowan. No, that's Henry Gowan. I'm thinking about Mr. Gowan. Yes, Mr. Gowan from Wonderful Life. We all got the same Mr. Gowan. Okay, there's a movie called The Wonderful Life. It's a story, and Mr. Gowan is a pharmacist. And I'm not going to remember exactly what was taking place, but he was a, mixing some medicine for a phone order that came into the pharmacy. And Jimmy Stewart was just a little boy at the time in the picture, in the movie. And he was supposed to deliver the medicine. And Mr. Gowan was a little bit inebriated. It means he was drunk. And he didn't notice what he was putting in the bottle for the prescription. And so Jimmy noticed that he was putting poison in the bottle. And so as sincere as Mr. Gowan was to believe that he was giving medicine instead of poison, little Jimmy Stewart knew the truth and stopped it from happening. And so it's a powerful moment in the movie. And it leads us to our message this morning that people can be very sincere, extremely sincere about what they believe. And we should be sincere. But people can be sincerely wrong. And it will not change the outcome of their false beliefs. Esau sold his birthright for a single meal. And it says, afterward, as you know, when he tried to get it back, he could not change it, even though he sought for it with tears. He could not change what took place. So if you want to open your Bibles to Second Peter, we've been working our way through First and Second Peter, and we're in... Second Peter, chapter 2, verse 1. Second Peter, chapter 2, verse 1, says this. But there were false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. False prophets, false teachers. Peter writes this statement as a sweeping presupposition, a true statement that needs no explanation. And he's referring to the Old Testament false prophets, and he's referring to current day false teachers that were in his time, and we have false teachers today in our time. So chapter 2 is uh, broken up 
simply a simple outline. Their conduct, chapter 2, 1 through 3, their condemnation, 4 through 9, and their characteristics, 10 through 22. Peter closed chapter 1 by defending the authenticity of Scripture by sourcing it in God. Remember how he closed chapter 1? He said, we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it as a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation, for prophecy never had, never will, its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And then he goes right into the next sentence, which is the one we're going to be looking at here, where Peter defends the deity of Jesus and the atonement of Jesus. Peter's given in his readers three pillars here for, that form the Christian faith and stand as forerunners against false teachers. The sufficiency of Scripture as sourced in God. The Godness of the Son and the sacrificial death of the Son. And we're going to be looking at those things. The whole rest of chapter 2, after he outlines these false teachers, that they're there, that they're secretly bringing in false teachings, the whole rest of the chapter is dedicated to their conduct and their condemnation of those who would falsely teach about Jesus. And this week, for me, it has been a drift checker. Because every one of us, if we have any sense of reality, any grasp on reality, we would know that we're subject to drift. My wife can tell you that when I'm driving down the highway. Many times we hear that, and she'll gently and lovingly, patiently look at me and say, can you stay between the rumble strips? And so I would invite you to check your drift. If you're questioning the authority of Scripture, if you're questioning the godness of Jesus, or if you're questioning the sufficiency of his shed blood, verse 2 is a warning and a description that follows in earnest seriousness all the way to the end of the chapter. It says, many will follow their shameful ways, leading people away from the truth about Scripture, away from the truth about Jesus, away from the truth about his atoning sacrificial death. And it's the destructive work of false teachers. If Scripture is discredited, Christianity is done. Without God-sourced Scripture, you have Scripture... And a book that's just another man-made religion. If you have another man-made religion, Jesus is just another man. You lose the value and the worth of his identity, his death, 
is just another death. There were false prophets among the people, Peter says. There are many, many verses in the Old Testament that describe the false prophets and that he warns against. And we're going to take just a moment to remind you that sometime in this next week, I would encourage you, if you're not already familiar with Jeremiah 23, to make a note that you would read Jeremiah 23. Because Peter doesn't go into much detail here. He just says there's false prophets. There were false prophets, and now there's false teachers. But we should read this chapter, and we should read chapter 23 of Jeremiah with the hair on the back, on the back of our neck standing up. We should read it with a shudder. We should read it in a very serious matter because false prophets and false teaching are. They are. We should read it with a warning of how easily it is to be led astray. We should read it with the warnings about false teachers and we should read it very humbly because we could be led astray. Knowing our susceptibility. Knowing that false teachers are subtle. They're intentionally deceitful. And their work is very clever. Some of the labels of the Old Testament false prophets were reckless, treacherous, covetous, crafty, immoral, profane, called the foolish prophets, God calls them, compared to wind, influenced by evil spirits. They led the people away from God and into air. They led people to follow idols that they could not see. They could not hear. Those idols could not see. Those idols could not hear. They could not save. They could not judge. They could not love. Idols are far worse than worthless. They replace the true God in the individual's understanding with a fabricated God. An imagined God who's just a mere caricature made in the person's own image. So it's so important that we learn scripture, that we stay familiar with the scriptures, that we read and we study and meditate on God's word frequently so as to recognize it when it is affirmed and be aware when it is being challenged. It's interesting. One of the stories I read this week was of a, a Chinese professor who a young student asked him, hey, could you teach me about jade? Jade is a rock. And so the professor said, yeah, come see me next week. Come to my lecture. And so the student, as the student came into the door, the professor handed him a piece of jade. And he said, just go and hold this tightly. And so he went and he sat in his chair and listened to the lecture. And the professor went on about this and on about that. And when the class was done, as odd as it seems, he didn't mention a thing about jade. So the student, he went up to the front, gave the professor back the piece of jade and left and see you tomorrow. So he came back the next day. Professor gives him the piece of jade. Hold this tightly. Lectured again, on and on. Didn't say anything about jade. 
said everything about everything else under the sun, but didn't say a word about Jade. This went on for weeks. And the student was getting frustrated, but he was too maybe considerate to go up to the professor and challenge him and say, what in the world are you doing? I asked you to teach me about Jade. And so he went and sat back down. I mean, he didn't um, say that to the professor who was just thinking it. But this went on week after week. And finally, when he came into class, the professor handed him a rock, said, go sit down. Instantly, he realized this isn't Jade because he was familiar with the truth. They teach bank tellers and people that work at different places that handle lots of money the same way. There's too many counterfeits. You can't identify them all. But if you know the real thing, so we're to be instructed to know the real, to draw close. Peter spent lots of time about his divine powers, given us everything we need through our knowledge of him, our personal relationship with God, walking with him in the cool of the day. Are you spending time with him? Are you seeking his face? Do you know him? The false teachers will present a clever even catchy, attractive message in which they secretly introduce errors alongside of the truth. The majority of the message might sound good, but there will be some small percentage of it that contains false ideas that are subtly slid in. They come through the right door, but they have the wrong message. It's interesting in Galatians chapter 2, and I mentioned this before, but in Galatians chapter 2, he said this in verse 4. This matter arose about defending the gospel. It says this matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. So Peter says they were in their midst. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them. And Jude chapter 1, there's one chapter in Jude, so Jude verse 1. He introduces his letter, and then in verse 4 of Jude, he says this, For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago, have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. The false teachers are posing as our higher authority than God. They're not intending to agree or submit to God, they want to be God. And every human being has that tendency. And we've got to be constantly reminded He is God and we are not. False teachers, untrue, deceitful, lying. Teachers are just that. Teachers provide instruction. False teachers, for this context, context here, are those who parade themselves as Christian teachers but those who teach false doctrine. They're the opposite of the apostles of the New Testament 
who rather than teaching God's word, they teach a message of human invention rather than the divinely inspired words of God. False teachers, they're often suave and personable, scholarly individuals who claim to be a friend of God and a claim to be a friend of yours. They preach, they write books, they write papers for religious magazines, but they attack Christianity from within and they lead unsuspecting sheep astray. Peter says, they will be among you in your midst. They will and do intermingle, infiltrate with the church. They're insiders like Judas who spent three years among the closest of Jesus' disciples the whole time living a lie. McDonald said, these false teachers take their place inside the church. They pose as ministers of the gospel. This is what makes the threat so critical. If they came right out and said that they were agnostic or atheistic or polytheistic, they would be, people would be on guard. But they're masters at deception. They carry and they quote their Bible. They use Christian language. And though using the words, they intend to use them in a totally different way other than historically. It's interesting when Paul warned near the end of his life in Acts chapter 20, when he called the Ephesian elders together, and he warned them this, and it reads, and I'm reading from Acts chapter 20, he warned them sternly about this very thing. Acts chapter 20, verse 27 says this, For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, because shepherds be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise to distort the truth in order to draw disciples away after them. So be on your guard. Apple, another author and scholar, he said this, they come in secretly with a hidden agenda. They smile. They sign your doctrinal statement. They profess to agree with you. And then they have the opportunity to teach. And they start to sneak in their false teaching in very subtle ways. Peter said, they will secretly introduce. That means they will bring in right alongside, secretly, craftily, deceptively, as spies and traitors, stealthily introducing themselves as the authority above the scriptures. Lenski said, the full force of this verb means to bring it in, in a deceptive, sneaking, covertly, so that the people are unaware. Simple people will not take note of what these teachers are bringing in. So we need to be paying attention. Those who claim to be teachers for God, and they teach falsely, and they're found in the inner circles of the most orthodox and conservative 
teachings and groups and fellowships. They pretend to care about the lost, yet they fatally delude those who follow them. They pretend to know God in his word. They pretend to know God's purposes and his ways when they know neither. Wherever important truth is at stake, these counterfeits will offer their cleverly invented stories. Jesus warned his followers, many false prophets will arise and mislead many. So it's been a heavy week, heavy couple weeks, pondering and thinking about this section of scripture and the warnings here. And so I want to just spend some time looking closely at this. So the first sentence in chapter 2 is just a, an assumption, a reality. Peter says, hey, there was false prophets in the past, and there's false teachers among you now. And they will secretly introduce destructive heresies, denying the sovereign Lord who bought them. It's interesting, if you have another translation this morning other than the NIV, you'll notice that the NIV is, um, is unique in the sense of using the word sovereign in that verse. Most translations use the word Lord or Master. And what they mean by that, what Lord and Master mean, is absolute unrestricted authority. In the New Testament, the word Master or Lord is used interchangeably speaking about God or speaking about the master of a household who exercises full authority over his family and over anyone in his household. The Greek word there is despot. It's one who has supreme authority. And in the present context, it implies a master over the relationships based in the fact that those relationships, he's the master and the Lord of them. So Lord, Master, Sovereign. He's the sole re ruler. He's in charge. He's the highest authority. All and everyone answers to him. This is what Peter's trying to say to them. They're going to deny the position of Jesus. They're going to deny his godness, his deity. The NIV, where it uses the word sovereign, it's to use to communicate the to the modern reader, the strength of what Peter was saying about the personhood of Jesus. Sovereign is a word used again and again in the Old Testament to communi communicate the unique power, the unique authority, the unique transcendence of the God of the universe. The God of Scripture is above all others. All other so-called gods. There's no one like him. Isaiah records again and again things like this. Isaiah 45. For this is what the Lord says. He who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Again, he says to Israel, surely God is with you and there is no other. There is no God. There is no other apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior. No, there is none but me. In Ezekiel, the word sovereign is used well over 200 times intentionally to demonstrate that the God of Scripture is set apart and unique 
in his power and in his authority and in his perfections. The New Testament authors use the word Lord and Master. So when Peter's saying even to deny their Lord and Master, he's communicating something very intentional and purposeful. Because when the Lord and Master is used in the New Testament of Jesus, it's speaking in the same way that he's the head, he's the ruler. There is no Lord and there is no Master like this Lord and Master. He is set apart and he is alone. During Peter's time, the word Lord and Master were used to describe the owner and the ruler, the one in charge. But there were many lords and there were many masters in Peter's day. But there was only one like Jesus. So the word sovereign is used by the NIV to catch the emphasis of Peter's thought here. That Jesus is the ultimate Lord. He is above. His name is above every other name. Peter is saying something about Jesus that was said about God in the Old Testament. All the other New Testament writers agree. And we're saying the same thing about Jesus. They were saying about God. So false teachers will secretly introduce anything they can to discredit Jesus, to deny his godness, and to undermine his saving work. False teachers, they don't want you to read the Bible. Even more than that, they don't want you to practice the Bible. They don't want you to be students of the Bible. They don't want you to obey the Bible. They don't want you to know the Bible. They bank on you having just enough knowledge to just be dangerous, just enough knowledge to be led astray, just enough knowledge to have a curiosity. And then they appeal to our pride and they appeal to our misunderstanding and our confusion and our unclear grasp of Scripture. And rather than telling us about Scripture, they tell us what to believe, how to believe it, and why. Study the Scriptures. Know the scriptures, handle the scriptures, obey and practice the scriptures. Talk to one another about what you understand of the scriptures. So this idea of secretly introducing destructive heresies. Destructive. The Greek word here is one that refers to separation, to ruin, the destruction of persons, objects, or institutions, the loss of well-being. To follow them will be lost. To follow them will be separation from God. Destruction, her destructive heresies. Self-resigned religious lies which lead to division and faction. Teaching that is a dissent or a diversion from the official or accepted position of historical beliefs. This is a very broad definition. It could be any group or any individual who differs from another group can technically be called a heretic. But in this chapter, he's using the word heresies. He didn't give a very broad definition other than this. They would deny Jesus and they would deny two things about Jesus. His godness and his atoning work. He limited his definition to those two things. He could have been broader, but he limited it to this, the denier of the nature of Jesus and the denier of his purchasing power. And I want us to get this and realize this. 
that false teachers spend far, far, far more time listening to themselves and others than listening to God, listening to the news, listening to the latest ideas, listening to man instead of God. And God brought judges, judgment on the nation of Israel for this very reason. My people have forsaken me. My people don't know my ways. They don't know my word. They have made their own sources of knowledge and truth. I'd like to just be as clear and as frank as I can. If you claim to be a Christian and you're not regularly in God's word, in the sense that you're reading it to apply it and practice it, to obey your master, Jesus, you're on shaky ground. And as someone recently reminded me, if you're... If people are not in the word for themselves and they're not trying to apply it to their lives and practice the word, if they're not pondering it, if they're not sharing it with others, they began to believe some very, very strange things. The word of God is the ground and the grounds of reality. That's what keeps us grounded, his word. Peter said that they would deny. And it's interesting that Peter himself was guilty of denying Jesus in the garden. But he openly repented. These people are not interested in repentance. They're purposefully leading people astray. So the, the word deny is simply this, to say that one does not know about a person or an event. And in this context, it doesn't mean merely a mistaken identity. Oh, like, I guess I didn't know who Jesus was. Like, Carol, you mentioned the blind man in, this, in our study this morning in the Gospel of John. Didn't know much about Jesus, but he knew that he opened his eyes. But to deny in this context was to a purposed intention to disassociate or reject the truth about the person of Jesus, to disregard his identity. Because if he's just any man, if he's just any teacher, you have no obligation to believe him less obligation to trust him. But if he is who he says he was, you have every obligation to bow down before him. To deny carries the idea of a conscience, willful denial. And Peter focuses on these two things that the early false teachers denied, the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus. And we'll get to that. So this is extremely important. Because the person, and we're talking about the person of Jesus, we're talking about his nature, his character. Jesus Christ as the son of the living God and the work of Jesus Christ as the savior. It's essential to the Christian faith. If Jesus is not who he claimed to be, and the, as the scriptures teach him to be, 
the eternal Son of God who became man, the Word made flesh, the Word that was with God, and the Word that became God in the beginning, and the Word was God, never became God. That's an error. That would be a false teaching, wouldn't it, Jess? He became man and walked among us. The Word became flesh and walked among us. Then, if the false teachers have their way, all of Christianity is suspect. The message will be marred. It's like changing the label on the medicine bottle. For his saving work on man's behalf would be misunderstood. He'd no longer be people's savior. He'd just another man. Even C.S. Lewis said we couldn't even call him a good man. He's either the Lord, a lunatic, or a liar. The truth would remain, but we would miss it. In Matthew 10, it's recorded that Jesus said, He who denies me before men, I will deny him before my Father. Peter is basically saying that one of the main elements of the false teachers is to try to secretly bring in a subtle distinction about the personhood of Jesus, to detract from the personhood of Jesus. They'll attempt to diminish his deity. Now, deity is a, a word that we're not familiar with in a sense, so I want to use a word, godness, okay? And let me explain this. They're going to challenge Jesus' godness, that Jesus and the Father had the same substance and the same nature, that they're composed of the same deity. Jesus himself said, I and the Father are one. He did not mean one in heart and mind, like they both had the same idea, which they do. He meant in God-likeness, in godliness. Listen to the introduction to the letter to the Hebrews. It says this, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets and many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. Whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So Jesus could say to his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In John chapter 5, they were arguing with Jesus. And he was declaring who he was. And it became absolutely clear that the Jewish leaders and rulers of his day, the false teachers, listen to what they said. This is in John chapter 5. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, my father's always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried harder, all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even, call, even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. If he's not God, it's blasphemy, and the Jews have a right to point it out and to Get rid of him. 
They were aware of what he was saying. So the foundation of false teaching is to question the nature of God in the person of Jesus Christ. It's a fundamental difference in being a Christian and being a religious person. Being a Christian and being a Muslim. Allah has no son. Listen to what John said in, in his letter, 1 John. I'm reading from 1 John chapter 2. Listen to what it says. 1 John chapter 2, verse 22. Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. So to deny the deity of Jesus, the godness of Jesus, is also to deny the godness of God, to deny Jesus' Father. He goes on, John does, in verse 23, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So if you deny the Son, whatever you think you have, you don't have the Son. See what you have heard from the beginning. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, even eternal life. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things. And as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. The Bible tells us God, the creator of the universe, has from the beginning a son, the word, the word that became flesh and walked among us, Jesus. He's the word that was and is and ever will be the one who was with the father in nature and substance. The godness of the father, the son has the holiness and perfection and righteousness and justice and love and mercy and grace and goodness of the Father, the Son has. The nature and character that makes the Father God, the Son has. Colossians 2, 9 says this, all the fullness of the deity lives in Jesus in bodily form. One cannot deny the godness of Jesus and be Christian. The Bible gives credit to Jesus in co-creating the universe with the Father. The Bible teaches us to worship Jesus. The Bible attributes to, attributes to Jesus God character. It's so fun, fundamental to the Christian faith. It has been the cornerstone which establishes the difference between Christian and non-Christian for the past 2,000 years. The Christian is one who believes in one God infinitely perfectly and eternally existing in three equal persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God is one in essence, yet distinguished and known in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father is our sustainer by his own self-existence. The Son is our Savior and Redeemer by his own blood. The Spirit is our sanctifier by his indwelling presence. The teaching of the Godhood 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has always been defended vigorously and maintained by the true church since the times of the apostles against the Jews, against the Arians, against the Marcians, the Manus, Pratus, Sibelius, and every other dissenting heresy and false teacher. From that day till now, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, but they're one. To reject the Godhead is to dishonor Jesus, the Holy Spirit, that Jesus Christ is true God and true man, the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins, according to the scriptures. He was buried and rose on the third day, according to the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is at the right hand of the majesty on high as our living priest and advocate, according to the scriptures. Peter is clearly affirming the deed of Jesus when he uses the word sovereign in the NIV, Lord or master in the other translations. Deity is a word and sovereignty is a word for God-likeness. He's clearly referring to the atonement work of Christ when he says, the Lord who bought them. Jesus and Jesus alone paid the price for salvation. Jesus' death alone, nothing added is sufficient to cleanse the guilt of sin and the conscience of the worshiper. Let's just fit, flip back one verse. In, in uh, 1 Peter, you're going to have to flip two pages to 1 Peter chapter 1. Look what he says here in verse 18. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, so your faith and hope are in God. Any teaching that distracts in any way, shape, or form from the finished, all-sufficient work of Jesus' sacrifice, his spotless blood poured out to ensure forgiveness, is false teaching. And it's rampant today. And it's increasing. Any hope of salvation apart from God's work through His Son, by grace, through faith alone, and Christ alone, is false teaching. It's a false hope. It's a false gospel. The death of Jesus for the sinner is why Peter can include the phrase, the Lord who bought them. The word bought is straight from the marketplace in the town square where such things as slaves were presented for sale back in that day. It literally means to buy in the marketplace. First Corinthians chapter six says the Christian was one who was bought with a price. Bought with the precious blood of Jesus. Jesus' reason for coming to earth to come and to give his life as a ransom for many. His death and his sinless blood satisfied the just demands of the high court of heaven, paying the penalty of the sinner. So when Peter is describing this to his readers, and he's saying there's false prophets and there's false teachers and they're going to be among you, and they're going to creep in, and they're bringing secret heresies, destructive doctrines, 
and he's warning them to be careful. Two things, the personhood of Jesus and his atoning sacrifice will be and have been attacked again and again and again. That's false teaching. We're good. Are you good? You get it? I'm getting it. I'm trying to learn it, trying to understand. And I'm trying to, I check with many of you and I check with others to avoid drifting in this topsy-turvy world we're living in with every wind of doctrine and the things that are being sold to us as truth. We need to know the author of Scripture. And we don't need to know Scripture. And we need to walk with Jesus in obedience. And we need to acknowledge Him as master of our lives. And give Him and Him alone our allegiance. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the truth of Your Word. We're thankful that it's available to us. We're thankful for the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us. We're thankful that we can practice what you've said to know the truth of it. To reject it harms us. To follow it brings us closer to you. Father, help us to hold up the truth of your word, the truth of the person of our Savior, Jesus, your Son, to recognize again and again our subjectivity, our fickleness, our wanderings, and help us to have a fresh sense of the understanding of the compass that you have given, the guardrails, the structure and substance found in the truth of your word. And lived among us in your Son, our Savior, Jesus. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen. So that finishes our time online.